Welcome to Feminist Question Time, brought to you by Women's Declaration International, the leading global organization defending women's sex-based rights against the threats posed by gender identity ideology. There's more information on the website womensdeclaration.com, where you will find our Declaration on Women's Sex-Based Rights, which has been signed by 32,308 people from 159 countries and is supported by 454 organizations from all over the world. We have over 100 volunteer activists, including 53 country contacts engaged in defending women's rights. This week we have um, on Feminist Question Time, we have Diana Shaw from the USA um, from Women Are Human, a website. She's going to talk to us about debunking myths about transgender murder and suicide rates. We have Simone XX from Canada, and she's going to be talking why feminists should be deeply concerned about Canada's Bill C-11. Then we are going to have Olena Zetseva from Ukraine. And Olena is going to be talking about war in Ukraine, sexual exploitation, still almost invisible. Um, and that will be number three. And welcome, Elena, being here. And then we're going to hear from Sue England from UK and Germany about the state of global demographics. Diana Shaw is from the USA. Diana founded independent news website Women Are Human as a spin-off of This Never Happens, a Facebook group debunking the myth that males who identify as women or cross-dress don't commit male pattern crimes. To fill in for mainstream news's, news media's silence or gaslighting language on gender identity, she expanded Women Are Human to such areas as sports, law and politics. So thank you so much for speaking today, Diana, and over to you. Transgender activists often say that by accepting and believing that some people are transgender, people will save trans lives. In other words, in not accepting that some individuals are actually members of the other sex or transgender or of neither or both of the sexes, which is non-binary in their language. Unbelievers are responsible for any of their murders and suicides, and these suicides and murders will end if all people believe and validate. The myths used to bolster the claim. Myth one, transgender identifying individuals consider or attempt suicide because they're not accepted as members of the other sex or of neither or both sexes. Myth two, Medical intervention into gender dysphoria decreases suicide rates. Myth three, when a transgender identifying individual is murdered, it is typically as a hate crime. So first we're gonna look into the first myth that transgender identifying individuals consider or attempt suicide because they're not accepted as being members of the other sex or of neither or both sexes. These are the facts. We don't know how many transgender identifying individuals commit suicide. We don't know why these transgender identifying individuals commit suicide. The off-cited 41% suicide attempt rate is from an analysis by the Williams Institute 
at the University of California School of Law, UCLA. The research was based on data collected from a questionnaire, the 2015 US Trans Survey. Like most widely circulated research on transgender matters, this research has serious limitations. These are the two organizations that The organizations conducting analyzing surveys are not neutral sources. We have the US Transgender Survey, which is dedicated to conducting surveys devoted to the lives of and experiences of transgender people. And the Williams Institute is a think tank at the UCLA law that's dedicated to conducting rigorous independent research on sexual orientation and gender identity law and public policy. Information reported by USTS participants about suicide ideation and su suicide attempts should not be used as the basis of inferences about suicide deaths among transgender people. No jurisdiction in the U.S. routinely and systematically collects information about decedents' gender identity at the time of death. And as a result, little is known about death among transgender people, whether by suicide or any other manner or cause. Systematic data from general population studies show differences in demographic characteristics, in particular age and gender, and suicide risk factors among people who die by suicide compared to those who seriously consider or attempt suicide. In the absence of specific information about whether transgender people show similar differences, no implications about suicide death should be drawn from findings presented in this report. This is one of the two reports by that organization. USTS as analyzed by UCLA. Okay, major implications of limitations of the suicidal, suicidality survey. So that was one of the major limitations of suicidality survey. And um, the slides got out of order. <laughs> and um, the authors acknowledged that their report has limitations warning that its findings cannot be considered nationally representative and should be understood to represent USTS respondents only rather than the full US transgender population. So here's another part of their report. First, the NTDS questionnaire included only a single item about suicidal behavior that asked, have you ever attempted suicide with dichotomized responses of yes, no. Researchers have found that using these, this question alone in surveys can inflate the percentage of affirmative responses. Since some respondents may use it to communicate self-harm behavior that is not a suicide attempt, such as seriously considering suicide, planning for suicide, or engaging in self-harm behavior without the intent to die. <clears throat> A national comorbidity survey, a nationally representative survey, 
found that probing for intent to die through in-person interviews reduced the prevalence of lifetime suicide attempts from 4.6% to 2.7% of the adult sample. Without such probes, we are unable to determine the extent to which the 41% of NTDS participants who reported ever attempting suicide may overestimate the pre actual prevalence of attempts in the sample. In addition, the analysis was limited due to the lack of follow-up questions asked of respondents who reported having attempted suicide about such things as age and transgender slash gender non-conforming status at the time of the attempt. In other words, they don't know whether the individuals identified as transgender or gender non-conforming and they don't know the age that they were when they attempted suicide. Second, the survey did not directly explore mental health status and history, which have been identified as important risk factors for both attempted and completed suicide in the general population. As has been noted, the NTDS instrument did not include questions about the timing of suicide attempts relative to transition and thus we were unable to determine whether suicidal behavior is significantly reduced following transition related surgeries as some clinical studies have suggested. We'll get back to that later. Lacking any information about completed suicides among transgender people due primarily to decedents not being identified by gender identity or transgender status it may be tempting to consider suicide attempt data to be the best available proxy of suicide death. Data from the US population at large, however, show clear demographic differences between suicide attempters and those who die by suicide. The next submission, we do not know whether these general population patterns hold true for transgender people but in the absence of supporting data, we should be especially careful not to extrapolate findings about suicide attempts among transgender adults to imply conclusions about completed suicides in this population. The report's authors say participants were not randomly selected and were drawn through convenience sampling a method that uses only participants who are available and easily accessible and that researchers across disciplines agree allows for more researcher bi bias. Authors also note responses may have been affected by recall bias and temporal ordering because participants were asked to rely on recollection of past events, including over a lifetime. Researchers across disciplines agree that high quality data that can be used to draw conclusions about the real world comes from studies in which participants are selected from a random and representative sample of the population, use a control group and a longitudinal to establish the correct sequence of events, identify changes over time and provide insight into cause and effect relationship. There's a high prevalence of lifetime suicide attempts among respondents who said they had transition-related surgical procedures compared to those who said they did not want transition-related surgery. 
comparably high or higher prevalence of suicide attempts were found among respondents who said they someday wanted FTM, genital surgery, hysterectomy, or phalloplasty. So these are some areas of this survey that I identified that need closer analysis to determine what actually influences suicidality in the trans identifying population. Studies consistently find a high rate of morbid mental illness or mental illnesses in patients who experience gender dysphoria. Those are two of a wealth of such studies. One of these studies finds nearly 63% and the other finds 71% of those treated for gender dysphoria have mental illness or illnesses. Multiple studies find that those who undergo cosmetic surgery tend to have high suicide rates. For example, women who undergo breast augmentation. And another point, individuals who identify as transgender are, are highly concentrated in prostitution. And international studies show that individuals in this industry have a high rate of suicide. This study, for example, found that prostitutes are known to be at increased risk of suicide. Data reveals that transgender identifying individuals who are members of disadvantaged groups, including those with disabilities in poverty, experiencing homelessness, belong to ethnic or racial groups that have been marginalized or oppressed, or are suffering from life impacting mental or general health issues, self-report the most suicidality. Due to the study's low quality data collection methods, these exact figures are not meaningful but I'm going to just go over them just because I want you to see the wide disparity between the rates. So black and Latino reported a, a 45 and 44% rate of suicidality respectively And while American Indian and multiracial top the list, male respondents also had a lower prevalence of suicide thoughts compared to female respondents. Analysis of other demographic variables found prevalence of suicide attempts was highest among those who have lower levels of educational attainment. This is from the study. High school or less 48 to 49% and have lower annual household income, less than 10,000 or were unemployed. Respondents who are HIV positive, 51% and respondents with disabilities, 55 to 56 to 65% have elevated prevalence of suicide attempts. The highest prevalence of suicide attempts was reported by those who described their disability as related to a mental health condition. 65% of those with a mental health condition that substantially affects a major life activity reported attempting suicide. Those who described their sexual orientation as heterosexual or straight had lower reported rates of suicide. 
than those who reported that those who were gay, lesbian, or, or bisexual. The report found significantly lower prevalence of suicide attempts among respondents who said people can never tell they are transgender or gender nonconforming and those who never tell anyone they are transgender or gender nonconforming. This protective effect of non-recognition is especially significant for those on the trans feminine spectrum. For example, male individuals who identify as transgender women. For people on the transmasculine spectrum, for example, female individuals who identify as trans men, our data suggests that this protective effect may not exist or in some cases may work in the opposite direction. That is to say that when males who identify as trans women pass, they're less likely to commit suicide. But when males who identify as males are passing, they commit suicide when females who identify as males are passing, they commit suicide at the same or at, at higher rates than female respondents who are non-passing. There are multiple societal, financial, general health, and mental health factors that may influence a person in the transgender identifying population to have suicidal thoughts. The report and media analysis of the report irresponsibly assumes that providing cosmetic surgeries and cross-sex hormones for gender identity is the primary solution to relieve a complex and wide variety of ailments. This study, for example, fails to address race or sex-based economic, mental, or general health concerns that may lead members of groups experiencing certain disparities at a group level to say they consider suicide more. Instead, voices of groups experiencing the most disparities are used to serve the elite individuals within the transgender identifying population whose voices dominate the gender identity narrative. These do not seem to be problems we can throw pills and cosmetic surgeries at. The next myth we'll be exploring is, the is that medical intervention into, into gender dysphoria decreases suicide rates. Fact. Longitudinal studies have found that suicide rates of the transgender identifying population increase following medical intervention. Over a 30 year period, long-term follow-up of transgender people undergoing sex reassignment surgery cohort study in Sweden, widely recognized as the best study on transgender issues followed up with post-operative transgender people who also legally change their sex. The study found that suicide rates of the post-operative transsexual demographic were significantly higher than that of the general population. The overall mortality for sex reassigned persons was higher during follow-up than for controls of the same birth sex, particularly death from suicide. Sex reassigned persons also had an increased risk for suicide attempts and psychiatric inpatient care. Sex reassigned persons had a higher risk of inpatient care for a psychiatric disorder other than gender identity disorder than controls matched on birth year and birth sex. This held after adjustment for prior 
psychiatric morbidity. In line with the increased mortality from suicide, sex reassigned individuals were also at a higher risk, risk of suicide attempts. This study found substantially higher rates of overall mortality, death from cardiovascular disease and suicide, suicide attempts and psychiatric hospitalizations in sex reassigned transsexual individuals compared to a healthy control population. This highlights that post-surgical transsexuals are a risk group that need long-term psychiatric and somatic follow-up. Even though surgery alleviates gender dysphoria, it is apparently not sufficient to remedy the high rates of morbidity and mortality found among transsexual persons. Another study, Trends in Suicide Death Risk in Transgender People, results from the, trans, the Amsterdam cohort of gender dysphoria followed up with 5,107 participants in the transition process from 1972 to 2017, which is a 45 year period. The study found the same suicide rates during each stage of transition from those who went for a first counseling session to those who had completed transition. Another research study, a long-term follow-up study of mortality in transsexuals receiving treatment with cross-sex hormones 2011, from 2011, followed 966 male to female MTF and 365 female to male FTM transsexuals for an 18.5 year period. This study found that male to female transsexuals had a risk of suicide 5.7 times higher than that of the general population. The Kaplan-Meier curve suggests that the survival of transsexual persons starting to diverge from that of match controls after about 10 years of follow-up. The cost-specific mortality from suicide was much higher in sex reassigned persons compared to match controls. As shown in the previous slide, trans-identifying people who undergo suicide intervention into their gender dysphoria often import satisfaction and decrease in depression and dysphoria when surveyed. However, there's a high rate of suicide at the 10 year mark. What's interesting to note is that studies show the same 10 year honeymoon effect for women who undergo breast augmentation. 98% of women report satisfaction, satisfaction following breast augmentation, yet an excess in risk of suicide becomes significant 10 years after the implants were placed. After follow-up of almost 19 years, the suicide rate was three times higher for women with implants compared with the general population. The risk of suicide was nearly seven times higher for women who got their implants at age 45 or older. The next myth, when a transgender identifying individual is murdered, it is typically as a hate crime. Most murders of the transgender identifying are not hate crimes. That's the fact. Hate crime, um, the definition as used here, a crime typically one involving violence that is motivated by prejudice on the basis of race, religion, sexual orientation, or other grounds. The, the organization 
that is doing this study is called Trans Respect versus Transphobia. It's an ongoing project by Transgender Europe providing an overview of the human rights situation of trans persons worldwide. Trans respect versus transphobia puts the number of murders of trans and gender diverse people between 2008 to September 2021, or a period of 13 years, at 4,042. Trans respect versus transphobia says there were 1,645 murders of individuals under the trans umbrella over that 13 year period in Brazil. And Brazil had the highest number of such murders of any nation. Trans respect versus transphobia writes in its report, the vicious circle of violence, trans and gender diverse people migration and sex work. 62% of trans and gender diverse people murdered in Brazil are sex workers. The focus of this report is on trans and gender diverse sex workers who make up 62% of the reported killings of trans and gender diverse people whose profession is known. That's what's reported by trans respect versus transphobia. International studies show that prostituted individuals are at heightened risk of fatal victimization and that most prostituted individuals who are killed are female and murdered by a male. Research demonstrates that prostitutes are at heightened risk of fatal victimization. Brazil saw nearly 60,000 murders in 2015, as many as the United States, China, all of Europe, Northern Africa, Japan, Indonesia, Australia, Canada, and New Zealand combined. So Brazil has a high rate of murder across the board. Most of these murders occur in South or Central American nations, transrespect versus transphobia found. Transrespect versus transphobia found that Sweden and Germany had during this 13 year period, two murders each of people the report said were trans while Australia had four, the UK had 11 and France 12. The U.S. had 324 such murders over the 13 years. A study, Homicide Rates of Transgender Individuals in the United States 2010 to 2014, found that the overall rate of transgender individuals was likely to be less than that of individuals who do not identify as transgender, which the study calls cisgender individuals. Black and Latino males with a transgender identity victimized by homicide are victimized by homicide more often than women, which the study calls their cis feminine comparators. It should be noted that Black and Latino males with a transgender identity have a lower chance of being murdered than other male individuals, such that we can even say that by identifying as transgender, these male individuals are safer for murder and males in general, general too. So this is used only as to share others' thoughts. I didn't run these numbers, but this is stats from a freelance writer and editor on Twitter. 2014 US murder rates per 100K of, the, of each population, it was 1.5 for all trans, 2.0 for all females, 4.5% for all males, 
7.1, for all US, 7.1 for all males, 13.3 for all black people, 23.8 for black males and 204.0 for prostitutes. Again, I didn't run these numbers. So these are just presented as an example. And you can run the numbers. In the year 2019, there were 21 trans people murdered in the US. The calculation for homicides per 100,000 is deaths per population. 100,000 100, times 100,000 equals 1.615 homicides per 100,000. That's the calculations they use. The homicide rate per 100,000 nationwide is 4.7. There are an estimated 1.3 million trans people in the United States. The source of that, this last statistic is Pink News. The source of the first is Statista. Therefore, you are three times less likely to be murdered as a trans person living in the United States of America. So this is the conclusion. The transgender identifying individuals most likely to be murdered are black and brown men in South American nations who are prostituted or black men in the United States killed by their intimate partners. Medical intervention will not save these black and brown men from prostitution or intimate partner violence. The elite of the trans movement often appropriate these murder statistics to get what they prioritize and desire for themselves but do nothing to change the factors leading to the high rate of murders of black and brown males who identify as transgender. The rest of the slides are just my references. Okay, we're gonna now talk to, hear from Simone XX from Canada. Simone XX is a writer for Women Are Human, currently specializing in political opinion editorials. She's based in Canada and is focused on strategizing to mitigate the impact of federal legislation and upcoming laws on women's sex-based rights. Simone is also a member and provincial coordinator for Women's Declaration International Canada. And you're going to be talking on why feminists should be deeply concerned about Canada's Bill C-11. So thanks very much and over to you. There are two things that you should know about me. As mentioned, I am Canadian. And two, I have chosen to remain anonymous in my gender critical work. Before joining the cause of gender critical feminism, I researched both sides equally and weighed my options carefully. My decision to support women's sex-based rights was determined by rationale. In the words of the great feminist, Maya Angelou, I am a feminist. I've been female for a long time now. It'd be stupid not to be on my own side. I also believe that feminism was created by females for females. And so too then is the legislation passed in support of women, thanks to the work of feminists. But we are facing an era that attempts to persuade us that feminism isn't feminism if it doesn't include biological males. This is an abuse of the tenets of diversity and inclusion. It is manipulative and it speaks to the psychological warfare that gender ideologues have been waging against us. Perversely, disrupting this logic carries a social stigma that has the capacity to damage a woman's career, relationships, and her health. Knowing all too well what males are capable of, I concluded that I could do my best work anonymously, 
both as a writer for Women Are Human and as a member of Women's Declaration International Canada. My decision to remain anonymous is also informed by my knowledge of the looming legislation in Canada's Parliament. And that brings me to the point of why I'm here today. Freedom of expression is our most important fundamental freedom in Canada. Without it, we are unable to fight for any of our other rights or freedoms. Free speech and freedom of the press are essential to the health of democracy. And so we must be able to exercise them efficiently through a diverse range of perspectives, including the feminist one. Under the authority of Liberal Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, the Honourable Pablo Rodriguez, Minister of Canadian Heritage, introduced Bill C-11 in February of 2022. Bill C-11, commonly referred to as the Online Streaming Act, amends the long-standing Broadcasting Act to extend its regulatory powers to include the internet in Canada. The Broadcasting Act is overseen by the Canadian Radio and Telecommunications Commission, better known as the CRTC. Bill C-11 has been publicly criticized by free speech advocates for being flawed in various ways and even ominous towards freedom of expression. But given my audience, I will focus on the aspects that as a feminist, I find deeply concerning. Bill C-11 is a terribly dull and innocuous sounding piece of legislation that barely registers on the radar of most feminists and gender critics. However, cloaked in subtlety, it hides the tools to suppress gender critical feminism while promoting an ideology that quietly embeds female erasure into the psyche of Canadians. Bill C-11 doesn't discriminate against women, per se, but fails to even acknowledge our existence at all. Female erasure has been stealthily traversing the globe at a formidable strength and speed. We are literally being written out of law. And that should be alarming to every single female-born woman on this planet. On June 21st, 2022, Bill C-11 was passed by the House of Commons into the Senate. To quote from within the summary of the bill, this enactment amends the Broadcasting Act to update the broadcasting policy for Canada set out in Section 3 of the Act by providing that the Canadian broadcasting system should serve the needs and interests of all Canadians, including Canadians from racialized communities and Canadians of diverse ethnocultural backgrounds, socioeconomic statuses, abilities and disabilities, sexual orientations, gender identities and expressions, ages, and provide opportunities to Indigenous persons, programming that is accessible without barriers to persons with disabilities, and foster the full recognition and use of both English and French in Canadian society. So, there are two elements to pay attention to here. Firstly, while implementing provisions for marginalized groups, women were left out. It is my contention that all sexes ought to be added to this clause. As we know, there has been a global effort to replace the word sex with gender in language and the law. And as feminists, we have seen the detrimental effects that this trend had 
has had on women's sex-based rights. Now, you might argue that women are included in the phrase, all Canadians. However, it is only implied that women are included. We must insist on explicit mention in law, therefore leaving no legal gray area. Furthermore, if all Canadians truly means all Canadians, then why even bother to emphasize inclusion of all ages, for example? In fact, why emphasize any of the other characteristics? I will return to that question later. Sometimes what's missing is more telling than what's there. So I compared the current version of the Broadcasting Act to the proposed amendments of Bill C-11. This revealed a gender sanitization. All references to women, men, and children have been removed and replaced by the phrase people of all ages. Ironically, the only mention of gender is in the explicit mention of provisions for Canadians of diverse gender identities and expressions. This is the second element to pay attention to here. It's because certain groups, such as those defined by gender identity and expression, which are explicitly included in the list, will be given priority in funding and grants. They are also among the groups who, who will be consulted to provide recommendations to the government on broadcasting policies based on their best interests. This is mentioned deep within the convoluted content of this 44-page bill and is confirmed in an important document that my research led to. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's mandate letter to the Minister of Canadian Heritage, written to the Honourable Pablo Rodriguez and dated December 16, 2021, stated that, we must continue to address the profound systemic inequities and disparities that remain present in the core fabric of our society, including our core institutions. To this effect, it is essential that Canadians in every region of the country see themselves reflected in our government's priorities and our work. As Minister, I expect you to include and collaborate with various communities and actively seek out and incorporate in your work the diverse views of Canadians. This includes women, Indigenous peoples, Black and racialized Canadians, newcomers, faith-based communities, persons with disabilities, LGBTQ2 Canadians, and in both official languages. So you'll note the explicit mention of the word women in the Prime Minister's mandate letter. All of the other groups from within this letter were included in Bill C-11 in the same or similar terms. So why were women the only group from this mandate omitted in Bill C-11's stated intent to raise the voices of marginalized groups in Canada? Women have been historically marginalized for millennia and continue to be so to this day. The feminist agenda for equality between the sexes is not complete and we should not have to still fight to further articulate the need to recognize this. According to Statistics Canada's latest reports, violent crimes of a sexual nature against women and girls have been on the rise in Canada. And according to a report published by the Canadian Femicide Observatory 
for justice and accountability, 160 females were violently murdered in Canada in 2021 alone. Men committed over 90% of these murders. The Femicide Observatory has stated that one woman or girl is murdered in Canada every 36 hours. I would also like to note that two of Canada's largest mass murders were both mass femicides. There were those committed by pig farmer Robert Picton, convicted in 2002 of only 26 out of a possible 65 murders. The grim details of which shed a light on the horrible injustices to Indigenous Canadian women. And there was the Montreal Massacre of 1989, when 14 female engineering students were murdered in cold blood after the shooter ordered the male students to leave the classroom. During this massacre at École Polytechnique, there was an exchange between the murderer and his victims in which he said that he's a man who's against feminists, against women like them, right before he opened fire. There had been a surge in the recognition and rights of women that preceded the Montreal massacre, just as there has been in the recent past with the Me Too movement. Backlash is one of the pitfalls of social progress. So I worry about a rise of violence against women, especially given the vicious dehumanization by those who call feminists TERFs. When Senator Sheila Feinstone spoke while representing the Canadian delegation at the Fourth United Nations World Conference on Women, held in Beijing on November 6, 1995, she recognized that this might happen. She said that differing perspectives over the rightful place of women in society will divide us, that a backlash against equality will hinder our ability to move forward or to hold on to past gains. This must not happen. We must not fail. Men's rights movements have been growing across the globe. Our progress is being overturned, no doubt as collective punishment, a sentence to put us in our places. Just look at what has recently happened in the United States with the overturning of Roe versus Wade on abortion rights and its impact on the female population. We must be able to speak openly and legally about issues that exclusively affect the female sex. Yet sex is being omitted and nullified in Canadian law despite being one of the protected characteristics in the Canadian Constitution Act. The exclusion of women and sex from Bill C-11 is particularly important because this bill is about communication in Canada. And communication is essential to the feminist movement, whether within nations or internationally. This bill is currently at the second reading in the Senate and is being studied by the Standing Committee on Transportation and Communications. Now, some of you will be familiar with the case in the UK where women's rights activist Mary Miller was charged under the Telecommunications Act for gender critical tweets. Eventually the charges were dropped, but not without significant disruption to her life. I worry that we will see similar vexatious litigation or worse, 
brought against Canadian feminists if Bill C-11 is passed by the Senate. In my article, Gender Critical Feminism May Soon Be Criminalized in Canada, published in 2021 by Women Are Human, I spoke about how these fears were founded. This bill first caught my attention in 2021 when it was introduced during the previous parliamentary session, then called Bill C-10, also known as the Broadcasting Act. This act is not a standalone piece. It is a significant aspect of a larger puzzle, one of female erasure and censorship. And if it is put into place, it will enable a far more threatening bill, the Online Harms Act. As gender critical feminists, we must strategize like chess masters, anticipating the next several moves of our opponents. We must analyze their patterns and learn to predict them. If Bill C-11 reaches royal assent, the internet in Canada will come under government regulation, rendering online content, including user content, subject to all Canadian laws, including the restrictions under freedom of expression. The Liberal Party of Canada has promised to reintroduce the hate speech bill, known as the Online Harms Act. This will add gender identity and expressions to the list of characteristics protected under freedom of expression. While the old version of this bill has already been introduced in the current parliamentary session by an independent member of parliament, as Bill C-261, a similar bill is waiting in the sidelines to be introduced by the much more powerful Liberal Party. Here, we find ourselves living in an, in an era where it is not those who commit moral harms who are held accountable, but rather those who call them out, a victim reversal. This could mean that publications such as Women Are Human or webinars such as WDI's Feminist Question Time are penalized not only for expressing opinions, but for revealing truths. Canadian trans rights activists and lobbyists have encouraged their community to silence any dissent from their ideology and to sue at every opportunity. Gender critics have repeatedly been shut down. We are told no debate. And that is precisely what these activists will continue to say when consulted with by the CRTC when it comes to policy creation. No debate and no reference to biological sex. So regardless of how clever, articulate or respectful we may be in our arguments, we face fierce opposition in Canada. The gender identity movement is supported here by everyone from our corner grocery stores to local city halls, to every major financial institution. Yet there is no support for women who protest male bodies in our safe public spaces. There is no support for our freedom of expression, which is based on our sex. We are silenced at every turn. Abuse thrives in silence. Canada is one of the member states who has repeatedly made promises to the international human rights community, to the United Nations, and to the women and girls of Canada 
to uphold the obligations set out in the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, or CEDAW. CEDAW defines discrimination against women as any distinction, exclusion, or restriction made on the basis of sex, which has the effect or purpose of impairing or nullifying the recognition, enjoyment, or exercise by women, irrespective of their marital status, on a basis of equality of men and women, of human rights and fundamental freedoms in the political, economic, social, cultural, civil, or any other field. But in direct contrast to the promises made by the Government of Canada, Bill C-11 does just that. It discriminates against women by exclusion made on the basis of sex from human rights and fundamental freedoms. Furthermore, Canada co-sponsored Resolution 68-181 at the United Nations General Assembly on December 18, 2013, which states that it is deeply concerned that historical and structural inequalities in power relations and discrimination against women, as well as various forms of extremism, have direct implications for the status and treatment of women, and that the rights of some women, human rights defenders, are violated or abused, and their work stigmatized, owing to discriminatory practices and those social norms or patterns that serve to condone violence against women or perpetuate practices involving such violence. Framed as an initiative to promote Canadian talent, the Broadcasting Act will have far-reaching effects not only on what Canadians say, but also what we see. The intricate web of policies defined in Bill C-11, once applied, will enable the CRTC to regulate internet platforms in Canada, requiring them to implement algorithms that elevate certain content while deprioritizing other. Discoverability on the Canadian internet will be subject to the appropriateness of content as dictated by the CRTC, determined in consultation with the communities described in Section 3 of the Broadcasting Act, which I mentioned at the beginning of this presentation. This applies to both domestic and foreign content. Content providers who earn a profit through streaming in Canada will be subject to taxes that will support the Canadian Media Fund, or CMF. Programs that meet the stringent requirements of CanCon, short for Canadian content, will be eligible for funding from the CMF. Essentially, what is framed as a bill to promote Canadian content is going to allow the government the mechanisms to decide which Canadian content is worthy of public funding and viewing. This is where Bill C-11 moves from being a feminist issue to being a gender-critical feminist issue if one so chooses to acknowledge the difference. Because Canadians of diverse gender identities and expressions are explicitly named in the objectives of this Act, they are amongst the groups eligible to receive considerable support from the Canadian Media Fund. Conversely, as women are not explicitly mentioned, we are not amongst the designated recipients of support according to these objectives. In fact, the regulations are such that we are likely to have to pay to have our content made discoverable on the Canadian internet. Let me clarify, 
women may be monetarily taxed and or penalized, whereas those who assume women gender identities will be granted funds to further disseminate their ideology. The long-term harms to women's sex-based rights in Canada may be catastrophic. And our youth growing up on the internet today and future generations may never know a different reality exists. If a gender-based analysis had been performed on Bill C-11, surely the factors that I have identified would have been discovered and amended as per Canada's commitment to the women of Canada, to the United Nations, and to the international community. Communication is essential to participation in a democratic nation. So when women were left out of the conversation, it harms our ability to participate in public life. Why didn't the Committee for the Status of Women and Gender Equality and Youth insist that we have a seat at this table? And what are we to make of Trudeau's Liberal Party, who calls themselves a feminist government? Freedom of expression is our most valuable human right as gender-critical feminists. Without freedom of expression, we are unable to fight for any other rights. Without freedom of expression, we are unable to fight for sex-segregated spaces or sex-segregated sports. Without it, we are unable to speak out against the medicalization, sterilization, and mutilation of our youth. And without it, we are unable to challenge existing legislation that increases the vulnerability of women and children and harms our human dignity. And without freedom of expression, we will be unable to protest against any future legislation that threatens our autonomy as, a, as women and as a female sex-based class. This is not just a challenge, but also an excellent opportunity to introduce Women's Declaration International Canada to our federal lawmakers. Bill C-11 is written in such a way that we can critique it based solely on the exclusion of women's sex-based rights without having to fight against another marginalized group of people. That would be a benefit to our reputation. My hope is that we can establish WDI Canada as a respected women's advocacy group that the government refers to when seeking public consultations on matters concerning women's rights in Canada. In closing, I would like to urge Canadian women to move beyond merely recognizing and calling out the shortcomings of our government. As feminists, we must communicate directly with our government through engagement in public consultations, writing letters to our members of parliament, to our senators, and to the committees involved in legislation and policy creation. We must unlearn our tendency towards learned helplessness and not wait for leadership to guide us. Instead, we must recognize the need to adapt to new challenges, even if that requires learning new skills. We must discover the potential of how we can contribute both as individuals and together in maintaining our collective status as a sex-based class. As feminists, we must analyze, we must strategize, we must organize, and we must mobilize now. Because if women are left out of the most important bills 
that shape our communications for the foreseeable future, we will surely be erased from that future. So we're going to now hear from Elena Zaitseva from Ukraine. Elena is a lawyer working as a gender equality expert and GBA plus expert from Ukraine. From February 24th, 2022, is engaged in anti-trafficking project in Ukraine, working on comparative study of international law norms related to fighting sexual exploitation. And the title of Elena's talk is War in Ukraine, Sexual Exploitation is Still Almost in Invisible. Thank you so much for coming, Elena, and over to you. My presentation will be related to war. Actually, I will be talking about women and women's rights. And uh, as our previous speeches today showed that it doesn't really matter what is this fear and what is the topic. We are talking about women's rights violations, about silencing women, about limiting women. And it all tells us about the system we live in. And it's all about feminism, about our fighting every day against patriarchy. So today's presentation will be focusing on women's rights, but I will not only give some information, I'm really hoping for feedback and sometimes for support, for advice from all of you, because so many feminists from so different countries and all your opinions may be really valuable if we want to move forward. And the topic will be about sexual exploitation related to war and connected directly or under indirectly to war that is happening now in Ukraine and the problem of silencing. What is the main conclusion I would like to make for the first, uh, the first place that yes, this problem is being discussed by Ukrainian government now. However, it's only limits to warning to potential victims. Discussions are around what types of victims, how can we inform victims, how can we help victims, and almost no more. But let me show it in details. First, I will stop on positive changes, which I can see during those five months of war. Then I will talk about the risks, and then maybe we can think about what we can all do. So what about positive developments? We did ratify the Istanbul Convention. It was a very, very long way because we signed it as a country. We signed it about 10 years ago, and there were several attempts to sign it, uh, to ratify it, so it becomes legal in Ukraine, but it was stopped by the term gender, which is included in the text. Another uh, so-called church unity organizations. They were very active and gained some PR points on pointing that this convention is actually pushing gender ideology. This story is very interesting by itself, but I will not stop on it. Uh, I will just uh, mention a little bit later what benefits can this convention bring to the topic of helping survivors of different types of violence, including trafficking for sexual exploitation. What else is being done good is that we develop 
and discuss a plan to state anti-trafficking program. This program was actually drafted last year, but still is not adopted. And I think it's a good thing because now we can change it the way that it would be more answering to the needs of people during the war and to the needs of women, refugees, including refugees and uh, victims of violence of, or related to war actions in Ukraine and helping them to avoid trafficking situation as well. Still, the program and the plan, we do not have a direct dates when it will be adopted, but if it will, and if it will include the issue of demand, fighting demand, demand it will be maybe one of the most important documents that can be a first step of introducing the Nordic model. Uh, another thing is that we are being told that our law enforcement agencies, for example, police, uh, prosecution office, are starting to cooperate on anti-trafficking issues. It's too early to tell uh, how successful this cooperation is, and we will see it later, but this tendency is uh, really important and that they are talking about it publicly, that they are cooperating with the aim to stop trafficking. And we do uh, have state-level discussions, roundtables on anti-trafficking, but yet, as I mentioned, it's almost about, always about uh, uh, talking about victims and survivors. So we'll stop on it later. Uh, we do have NGO trainings, and this is uh, actually related to Istanbul Convention, because Istanbul Conventions envisages that we do need to have a certain amount of uh, support centers in the country according to the amount of the population. So we will have, and we already do have uh, help and support, including financial support from the state to the regions, to certain regions, to establish those centers, uh, support centers. And so they will need personnel and uh, NGOs are actively engaged in training uh, of personnel who will work with the survivors. Uh, the, Amount and uh, the, the essence of the training is another issue. And some uh, state institutions seem really closer to the idea of uh, fighting demand as a necessary for Ukraine. It's not anything official yet, but I do hear mentions of it and I do see that some uh, state officials are aware of this uh, possibility and are considering it. So what are the risks and possible problematic moments now? This is maybe the most terrible thing and most important thing I would like to tell is that we do not have uh, enough rehabilitation centers and certainly we do not have exit program, programs for survivors. And the risk here is that we will have these programs aimed at survivors of rapes from Russian soldiers of uh, other types of violence and gender-based violence, but not for survivors of persecution. And this is very important that we do integrate exit programs as a part of rehabilitation program. We are trying to work hard to make it happen. And the next problem is the polarization of attitudes to prostitution. You know, we are not talking about prostitution as a violation of women's rights. Ukrainian society are talking about prostitution, whether as a shame for women, 
but there is a right for women. So men are invisible, still invisible in this conversation. And it doesn't even matter if you leave a comment about uh, pimps or somebody else, the discussion will always come to discussing women engaged in the prostitution. So it stops us from doing what we need to stop the demand. And uh, there is emphasis on uh, warnings for on trafficking for labor exploitation, which is related that some organizations in Ukraine are mostly dealing with uh, labor exploitation and they have good connections with our state authorities and they are have the possibility to talk uh, in mass media uh, and to um, make public speeches and they are talking about men and this is really really a shame as, as for me because when i open a video uh, which is named like helping ukrainian refugees to avoid human trafficking and when a representative from international organizations talk, talks about men and helping men, when we know that 90% of refugees are women and children, this is really strange. And this is really not the way it should be when we should focus on real potential victims, at least when we are talking about victims. And of course, we understand that men also can be victims, but in this situation, we should talk about men. We should talk about sexual exploitation, not making too much emphasis on, an, on the labor exploitation, which is really not so relevant in this situation, situation of war that we have now. And of course, it's much easier to talk about enemies and blame enemies, for example, Russian soldiers, than it is to blame, blame for example, Ukrainian soldiers with the same crime or Europeans, because Ukrainian soldiers are protecting Ukraine. So it's really hard to have a conversation in the public sphere that, yes, there is exploitation of women among Ukrainian soldiers. There is exploitation of Ukrainian women and refugees and girls in Europe. Because it's much easier to say that, yes, we will crime, we will see crimes and punish Russian soldiers as an enemy. But we should talk about all the cases, not only about crimes committed by the enemy. And we still have poor understanding of what fighting demand is. And uh, as I should say, it's not only the fault of our state institutions. It's very strange, but I analyzed uh, documents and uh, recommendations issued by uh, several very famous and very reliable organizations from the Europe, for example, Greta or OSCE or European Union. And I was trying to find there something about fight and demand, some actual recommendations related to how can we stop demand. And also some of these organizations have really good documents adopted, other documents related to fighting demand and conventions. In those documents related to Ukraine, no actual measures of fighting demand were mentioned or at least listed or at least given any reference to other documents. So we actually don't have anything to stop and to show to, to show our government as an example. For example, I would say that you can see this uh, Greta recommendations, please see they do recommend us fighting demand, but what do they mean by it? Giving information and helping to survivors. These are not measures of fighting demand, it's other things. 
And it's a pity we don't have it in official documents. And the last, at least what I can say, it's a lack of experts on combating sexual exploitation. We do, we do have a lot of great and prominent gender experts and some experts, for example, Maria Dmitrieva, which you, I think, know, uh, they do uh, specialize in combating sexual exploitations, but there are too, 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 not too many of them. There are really several people. And people who actually specialize on even on gender-based violence or violence, uh, sexual violence, they do not have enough uh, expertise on sexual exploitation issues. And that's make them actually uh, avoid this topic during uh, any courses, presentations, webinars. So what can we all do? Of course, of course this is just what I can see. Maybe you can uh, add something to it, but this is what I would like to tell. To tell, to tell. And uh, first of all, is uh, we need help with the developing of exit programs. Any help. It can be advice. It can be example of the programs. It can be uh, some stories about success cases or failures, anything we can. It can be official communications with our government that we need such programs. It can be any manifests uh, addressing this issue, uh, whether on your website or anywhere. We just need any help with this, any help we can get. And of course, we all, uh, we are in other countries and you are in your countries, we should continue pressing our parties, other governments, uh, so that refugees need additional protection from sexual exploitation. I mean, of course, the vulnerability is mentioned when uh, we talk about sexual exploitation or trafficking, but this link that refugees of war are vulnerable, this should be stated clearly. And you, better it would be officially uh, stated in some document. This is the easiest way to make it quite clear that any refugees are poor is vulnerable. So involving her or him into prostitution or sexual other type of sexual exploitation is actually trafficking. Until it's not, it's, it's in separate documents, but still it, until it's not stated clearly in official documents, they can avoid, uh, officials can make make a way that they are not realizing this, that this is our vulnerability, or just uh, ignoring this fact. And I would like to ask you to share information about the petition on the Nordic model that we do have uh, appeared in June, and we have uh, 90 days uh, so that we can collect 25,000 uh, signatures. It's only for Ukrainian citizens, but maybe you can advise on how to share the information on the petition. Or maybe you have uh, where to share it among Ukrainians or in, in other uh, platforms. So we do really need the, uh, the help in sharing the information. I will give a link to the petition and the link to this presentation as well. And uh, what we also can do, not only do something ourselves, but also encourage others to help and support Ukraine, whether by sharing information, uh, donations, sharing posts, any help is uh, valuable, or going to some actions, public actions, protests, anything like this is helping Europe and other countries to remember what is, what is going on and that we do need protection, especially 
from violence against women, which is being silenced, as I mentioned. And of course, you can give support to Ukrainian women and girls near you. It can be any type of support, psychological, some kind words, just helping them probably to find information they need, uh, to help them to uh, get uh, support they need because they have this language barrier, etc. It's up to you, but it's also really valuable. And several uh, words about my project because I, usually I do not include information like this in uh, the presentations, uh, but this is really connected to the anti-trafficking and I'm proud of what we've done and what we are trying to do. And I really hope that uh, why I'm sharing this, I really hope that maybe you would like to advise something. Right? Maybe you can uh, give some valuable information. And this is why I'm sharing my email and for, for you to remember <laughs> whom to share it with. And we did already uh, done a lot. We had about 7 millions of uh, people who saw the information about risks of trafficking at the first weeks of uh, the whole uh, escalation of the war. We were the first to develop those list of uh, uh, risk situations. We checked uh, with, our, with the help of our European organizations, with our feminist friends from Europe. We collected actual uh, contacts of reliable NGOs, not just uh, you know embassies or police, but NGOs that can give real support in case a woman is a situation of women trafficking, human trafficking and uh, sexual exploitation. And we are working on a chatbot that will link uh, the survivors or any people who would like to help them to free services because we do have several free services in Ukraine. And this is of course not all we do, but at least, at least we are trying to do it. And as, as I mentioned earlier, we are working on that demand was not silenced. The issue of demand was raised loudly during the state meetings and the round tables and during the work of state authorities. And probably just some, I would know, I would say emotional thing that what, what we hope for in Ukraine is we live another day in this war. We hope that there is one less day until the victor of Ukraine. And I would like to add that I do hope that is one day closer to promoting women's rights and to getting us the Nordic model. So now we're going to our final speaker. Sue England is based in Munich and is a qualified as a lawyer in the UK. She studied in the UK and Belgium and has worked in four different countries around the world. She later taught human rights law and EU, European Union law, at two UK universities. Um, Sue is an active member of Women's Declaration International and also runs a series of seminars on human rights law for non-lawyers. Everybody's welcome to attend on Zoom and they're free and we've put the links into the chat so you and we'll put them into the YouTube so you can follow those if you want to. Um, Sue's going to talk about the state of global demographics. Um, so thank you very much, Sue, and over to you. So a real uh, sort of umbrella view of the situation with global demographics, because this is very important at the moment to all sorts of things that are going on, attitudes towards birth rates, attitudes then towards contraception, attitudes towards 
what in reality countries do to help women and the families around them support children or support the children who are not in families and also in many countries this question now of attacks on um, abortion and things such as that. So this is to give you a, a real overview of what the situation actually is at the moment in statistical terms. So it's useful when you go to demography to know what the demographers talk about, because obviously they have a certain amount of esoteric jargon. They're always going on about the total fertility rate. What is that in their statistics? The number of babies that a woman has in her lifetime. So in other words, the average number of children or women, a woman in a country has the TFR. They're always talking about this and I'm gonna be talking about it. They also talk about the demographic transition. And this is in fact, what is happening in the world and has been happening for the last 200 years or so, which means the human species through its women are having far fewer children per woman. It kicked off in the early 1800s in Europe and indeed in the US. It's gone, it's going on all over the world, but in other parts of the world, it's gone much, much faster. So particularly from the Second World War onwards. You'd be interested to see that the current global fertility rate is 2.428, let's not worry about that, births per woman. And it's going down all the time, for example, 0.41 since last year. So when you think of lots of women still having very large numbers of children, that is balanced against the fact that all over the world it's going down, and some countries it's very low now. Replacement level fertility that they talk about is the average number of children, and they always put it as women must have, to replace the population for the next generation. So you'll see them always bouncing on about this idea, this figure 2.1. So basically every woman has to have two children and a little bit extra on average for slippage, unfortunately, children who die, children don't reach breeding age. And then if every woman in a, in a society country is having 2.1 children, you're going to replace the population. What you do around that, whether you know, there's lots of immigration, whether people are living longer, whether people are living shorter, that also has an impact on the figures. But they're talking about what they're expecting women to do as part of this, have 2.1 children on average at least to replace the population. All this is endlessly calculated on women. Um, sometimes, you know, I feel like saying to them, can we just hold it here? Now, I don't know if anybody's told you, but when the mummy bear and the baby and the male man bear, the father bear, love one another very much. That's when our babies come along, <laughs> okay? But they always just talk about women, somehow having children sort of regardless of what's happening with the males of the population, okay? Births are actually, in any, in any society, are about ultimately the economic situation in a society. You can, that's what's actually going on. What's been the, 
the impact of COVID, well, all over the world, it's pushing the fertility rate down, except in some countries where access to contraception and safe abortion has been very badly affected by COVID. I mean, one could predict that. So there will be some countries where the effect is actually to push it up, but generally it's down. So here, for example, the US, um, when COVID kicked in in 2020, a lot less births compared to the year before, before COVID. And now the US birth rate is at an all time low. It was going down, but this is pushing it further. In the UK, the same thing. The total fertility rate was going down since 2014 anyway, but now it's gone down further, 1.55. As you can see, that's well below reproduction rate, replacement rate. India, in fact, is having two children per woman now. It varies a lot from area to area in India, but that's where it is now. That's below reproduction rate. But the global population will be 8 billion in November this year, to put all this in perspective. It's going up still a lot. So looking at it a bit more detail historically, since 1950, when on average globally women had 4.7 children, it's now as of this year, 2.428 throughout the world. As you can see, that is nearly halving it and the trajectory is down. Despite that, um, because people are living longer, we're looking at the world population peaking 2080s to 2090s, one, 0.5 billion. So that's another 2.5 billion on what we're going to have in November. That's a lot. That's another 25, 30%, isn't it, on 8 billion. Let's look at some of the general important trends. They used to not ask the men or calculate figures on men, but it's clear that certainly in developing countries, or sorry, developed countries, um, more men than women don't want to have children at the moment. The whole population is going off having children, but women, women particularly, but men also an awful lot. More men than women in developed countries, if you ask them, so they don't want children. It's increasing, not having children is increasing for both sexes. You could, many, many countries now, it'll be 15% of women who say they don't want children. It can be 20% for men in the same population. And both figures are going up. Also looking at, because then countries always looking at it from the point of what's happening in our country, okay? There's about 200 countries in the world. They're reckoning that by 2050, 151 countries in the world will have this total fertility rate lower than the re replication rate of 2.1. And in 2100, it will be 183 countries out of the 200 in the world. That's how things are changing so much. And we're now here just picking on South Korea, but South Korea was the first major country in the world whoops, where um, I think this is 2020, 
no, 2021, they're having less than one child per woman. And other countries are following too. That's a big, big change and happening very rapidly. South Korea's and many other Southeast Asian countries, the, the birth rates dropped hugely, very fast. Vital global facts about all this. Birth rates vary with economic changes. They always have done. Actually, the economic situation in your country is a lot more important than your cultural ideas and all these other all these other factors. Obviously, you may have a very high birth rate and then the economy sours a bit and the birth rate goes down, but it's still much higher than South Korea. But still, it's the economy that pushes these things. Human beings are normally fairly sensible and they want they have children when they can afford them and manage to look after them. Vital also to understand when women have children older, this massively reduces fertility. You simply haven't got so long as a woman to produce lots of children. And of course, all around the world, normally the age at which women are having the first child is going up, going up quite a lot. I think in the, you know, in the UK and some places now, you know, most women aren't having children until they're 30. This is a huge change. Of course, increase in life expectancy hugely affects your population size. So for most countries, the population increases is mainly now based on the fact that people are just living much longer. So every time they have a census, you're still there to be counted in because you're still alive. You didn't die when you were 55. The abortion rate, um, it's a very important factor, of course, for women, whatever circumstances there are, is not affected by legality. Women have abortions, whether it's legal or not. And this has been proved time and time again. The main change with abortion, for example, because a lot of people are sort of somehow saying, women aren't having enough babies, we must stop abortion, you know? Well, the only thing that happens, the difference between legal and illegal abortion is that when it's illegal, more women die and more orphans are created because many, many women are having abortions when they've already had children. It's not confined to younger women or un, un, unmarried women, for example. And also a new trend, a very important new trend, because we've been living sort of in a world perhaps for 50 years where life expectancy in general has been going up and up and up. Now, for example, in the US and the UK, life expectancy is actually reducing for poor people. It may be increasing on average, still because the bulk of the population is better off and their life expectancy is going up but we've now hit in the western world a situation where life expectancy of the poor is actually reducing other vital global facts more education for women always affects the birth rate downwards it doesn't matter what culture what religious traditions what the level of that you know what the state of that education system it is it Women are getting better educated all around the world, and this always affects the birth rate downwards. Next, all over the world, and also within individual countries, people are moving from rural areas into the cities. Cities are getting lots more bigger cities, lots more depopulated rural areas. It's more exciting, more expensive to have children in the big cities. 
you can offer them more. It costs you more to offer them more. People are having smaller families for that reason all around the world. Also, in many developed countries now, even poorer people from the working classes are modeling uh, the middle classes. And instead of leaving it to the state, say, to educate their children, they feel they should put a lot of extra resources into the children that they have. And this is another reason for pushing the birth rate down. Have one or two children and, and spend a lot of money and time on educating them and getting them into a you know, better position in life. And of course, if more men and women don't want children, <laughs> the theory, well, then if you're going to keep this reproduction rate up, the ones who do want them are going to have more. They're not having more. So as the number of people not having children sort of eats into the general mass of the population, you are reducing the you are reducing the number of children that are being born. So to have more children, as many politicians want us to do and pressure us to do and endlessly talk to us about as it's a problem, if we don't stop this reduction in the number of children being born, each woman uh, is seriously against the global trend. It's completely against the global trend. So we have to bear that in mind. Well, as soon as states start endlessly talking about increasing birth rates, what's this going to mean for women? Now, a postage stamp. Okay, <laughs> Sudden change, <laughs> change of, <laughs> or not all that black and white print. Okay, this is from 1989, when the Germans celebrated the fact that they were the first country in the world in 1889 to bring in um, pensions for everybody, print and physiquerum, okay? So they, I love this because it's a very nice example of what's happened in more developed countries using these little graphs, these little tree, these little Christmas tree graphs that all the demographers use. So I'm just pointing them out because they're interesting to look at, but you'll see them. Whenever you go, go on Wiki anywhere, look at de demographics for your country, anything, they use these and they're quite useful. So going down, you see age. Going across, you see the number of people in that particular 10-year slot in your population and divided between men and women. So what you see um, on the left is an absolute classic situation that most countries go through and what Germany and other European countries, probably America too, were going through 100, well, no, sorry, 120 years ago. A lot of children being born and then throughout each 10 years, you go up through the system, some people die, okay? And people being in their 80s is fairly rare. 1989 in Germany shows how people are living much longer, particularly women, um, but how the birth rate is dropping. We've now got tree, sort of more like deciduous trees instead of Christmas trees, okay? Much smaller groups at the bottom, the children being born, and then lots of people living much longer and making a bigger population. 2020 was a projection, actually, um, but it's it was reasonably accurate at the time. So there also you can see the effect of wars or huge instability in countries. There you can see just under the age of 40, you can see the effect of the Second World War on Germany. 
and you can see the effect of the First World War later on. So that's just the basics of these things, but it, it's it's useful to show how dem demography is changing. This is a very developed Western European country, but all countries are going through this too, in their own ways and at their own pace. And so just to give you one example of a country where we are still in full Christmas tree bauble mode, this is Nigeria as of 2017. So this is currently at the other end of the scale. Still, very large numbers of children being born and then throughout life, an attrition rate, very few people reaching 80 in that country. But showing how there's a completely different trajectory in Nigeria, it is going to become, the, I think it's the third largest country in the, the fourth or fifth most populous country in the world, unlike European countries where our populations are reducing. The projections are from now to 200 million, 2010, probably something like 700 to 750 million people on this basis. Now, as you know, the demographers are always making projections for us about what's, what's going on. New estimates from 2020, when they were already aware, obviously, that COVID had started, suggesting that the global population increase will continue to slow. It's slowing down, even though the population is increasing. The increase is slowing due to the education of women and more access to contraception being the primary things. Well, will this be enough really to uh, stop this huge population explosion? It's not looking good at the moment. Both these things are in the UN Sustainable Development Goals, which the UN and the many world, you know, countries around the world have been working on for 40 years or so. An awful lot has been done, but they're seriously off track. So at this stage in 2000, the demographers looking at this said that this is a big shame. If we had done what we said we would done, we will do globally through these sustainable development goals, we would have massively reduced the increase in the population. We could have, instead of been looking at something like 10 and a half billion in 2100, we would have been looking at 6.29, which would be a massive reduction on what we have now this year, 8 billion, okay? So this shows what's going on in the world and it shows the power of actually educating women and giving them contraception. It has a huge impact on birth rates. And here, unfortunately, it is impacting on birth rates, but nothing like as much as it could possibly have done. If, as they're saying, if the world had done what they said they actually wanted to do, okay? So we are still manifestly failing on women's education and access to contraception under these goals, but that is the impact that it's having on the world population growth. 
And another really important thing, and I, actually this is the major take home from this today. I've only got, this is my second from last slide, you'd be pleased to know. Again, when they were looking at all these, um, uh, what the dem demographers work and all the various projections they're making, there's lots of projections being made and you end up sort of averaging them, okay? This is from um, the Global Burden of Disease Study, unfortunately it's called. But anyway, this is just pure demographics. They also admitted in 2020, we are getting increased, this is all getting increasingly shoggly, increasingly unsustainable what we're doing, because now we're all flying blind. All the work that's been done on demographics in the past was based on populations where the women were having more than 2.1 children, obviously sometimes considerably more, but in a lot of European countries, perhaps for a long time, around that figure. So women were reproducing the population. They were having these 2.1 or more children. And everything we analyze and discuss and try and predict is based on that. Having less than 2.1 children is unheard of for the human species. So how is this impacting on cultures, countries, economics, the relationships between men and women, everything which affects the birth rate? Well, we really are guessing now because we've never been in that situation before. We've never had a South Korea. Indeed, we've never had a UK where you're only producing 1.55 children per woman. So when you look at any of these um, pro projections, you have to bear that in mind. Women are confounding the demographers and some of them are now willing to actually admit it. But you like in this one here, you find it on page like 16 of this report, not in the headlines at the beginning. So that's another really important way in which demographics is changing. The demographers don't really know how to model any of this anymore. So finally, um, let's sort of look at some of this globally again. And again, these are forecasts. It's predicted that by 2010, the TFR for women throughout the world will be 1.66. As we know at the moment, it's 2.4-ish. So this is a massive reduction again, continuing. Sorry, I just had to turn my screen off. And it's going to make a massive shift in the balance of power throughout the world. India, later on this year, on sorry, next year or the year after, is going to become the largest, have the largest population of any country in the world. Currently, it's China, which is at 1.4 billion. But China is going to drop massively. India is going to continue to increase. So next year or the year after, it will become the largest country in the world for population. As you can see, here's another projection, slightly more. Nigeria will be going up to 79, 791 million. 
China is going to drop, they think, by about half, 48%. And it's actually beginning this year. China's population is beginning to go down massively because Chinese women now, whatever you say to them or whatever rules you put in around them are having fewer and fewer children. And they're now down to something to 1.2 per woman. And every time they've relaxed the rules in the last seven years and said Chinese women can have more children, every year they've had less. So that's the way Chinese women are looking at it. So in 2000 and 2100, you're looking at China being 732 million on most of the projections. That's a massive drop. And also what's happening, because we're, we are actually having fewer children, even though the population is still going up in many parts of the world, partly because of increasing life expectancy. This is happening in a lot of countries still. I mean, you know, most countries' life expectancy is going up. We have a shifting age structure. So there are going to be, by 2100, 2.37 billion older people, that's 65 years or older. And we're gonna have 1.7 billion who are actually younger than 20. And that is going to be a massive change around as well. This is always presented as a problem. I don't really see why. Um, and that's a subject for massive debate. But we know in so many countries, so many experts, so many politicians, they're always saying that women having fewer children is a problem. Is it or isn't it? I'm not trying to, trying to answer that now, but I can tell you they are having fewer children and we are going to be dealing with that. And women are doing this. Women are changing the world. 